Mike Hinsey was a Washington State Supreme Court clerk. Since then, he has gone on to do some spectacular work. Mike was Chief Privacy Counsel at Microsoft for 18 years. You'll want to hear all about his fascinating career. On today's podcast, I am thrilled to be joined by Mike Hinsey. He is a partner at Hinsey Law PLLC. And uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Mike. It's my pleasure. All right, great. So we'll start uh, with growing up. You, you were born uh, in Seattle. So talk a little bit about that. What, what were, you know, even as a kid, what uh, were you thinking of uh, being, you know, uh, when you grew up in, in Seattle? Oh, gosh. Uh, I wanted to be a privacy lawyer as long as, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, I guess I didn't think too much about it. I, I went through a stint of wanting to be an astronomer. I've always been, you know, attracted to sciences. I was kind of a sci-fi geek growing up. Um, but uh, as I got into school, my academic interests actually moved more towards the liberal arts. Uh, I ended up being a history and philosophy major in college. Um, didn't really pursue the science or technology track uh, through my education, but it was always something that was interesting to me and I, I followed it and I, I liked, you know, playing with the latest gadgets and all of that. Um, but, you know, I, I went through a lot of different periods of, you know, different interests um, and I never really knew exactly what I wanted. I guess because my, my dad was a lawyer like the law was at least something on my radar. Never really thought I would be a lawyer growing up. I never, there was never a point where it's like, oh, you know, I, I really want to go to law school until I was, you know, well into college. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I worked a bunch of, you know, typical teenager jobs. I worked retail uh, for a bunch of years. I bust tables, um, just stuff to, you know, cover expenses with a little extra beer money. Sounds good. Um, fascinating. So then you stayed uh, in state for, for college and you went to the University of Washington. So talk about is that decision to go there and, and some of the uh, activities or, or internships uh, you had in, in undergrad. Yeah, yeah, as undergrad, um... You know, I, I went in not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I actually kind of coming out of high school and coming into college, I actually thought I might want to be a high school teacher. Um, and my biggest interest was in history. Somebody told me it was hard to get a job as a history teacher and it was much easier to get a job as a math teacher. So I actually started pursuing this track where I was a history major and was going to get a math minor. Um, and then when I got into like the 200 level calculus courses, I realized that, you know, math is maybe not my thing. Um, and so I, I dropped that, ended up, like I said, studying philosophy as well as history. So I got a double major in, in history and philosophy, you know, focused on ancient Greece, the ancient Near East um, uh, in, in history and my 
my philosophy interest started in, in that, you know, era, era of ancient Greek philosophy. And then I, I moved out from there. Um, you know, in terms of my extracurricular activities, I, I, I worked a, a couple of jobs. Like I said, I bus tables, I worked retail. I was a janitor for a short period of time at a daycare center. That was gross. Um, and, uh, I, I had a number of extracurricular activities. The, the, mo the one that ended up taking the bulk of my time was I ended up running the Amnesty International group at uh, the University of Washington and really got into the idea of, of international human rights, you know, civil rights, immigrants' rights, uh, criminal justice reform through that. And that was the thing that actually sparked my interest in going to law school. Um, just the way the law affected people and their their rights and 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 you know fundamental aspects of their lives, um, and you know I did some other extracurriculars. I had, I was in my an officer in the history honor society group. I was a, a an officer in the pre law group uh, at, at the University of Washington. Um, and, uh, but it was that, that, you know, that international human rights work that I did with Amnesty International that really sparked my interest in, in the law and, and pursuing law school. Interesting. So when was that, uh, in the course of your undergrad, was it right before, uh, you were ready to graduate or, and then uh, you had your eyes set on law school? It was about midway through. I ended up going five years undergraduate because it was in-state tuition and I didn't really mm -hmm. have a clear path of what I wanted to do. So, and I liked taking classes. I, I took a lot of random classes outside of my major. I ended up doing something in the poli-sci department where I, I did an internship for a quarter down in Olympia in the Washington State Senate and worked in the office of, of a state senator. Um, and I got a bunch of poli sci credits that you know weren't really necessary for my major or for for graduation. I just thought it was interesting and a really uh, fascinating experience. Um, and I you know I I ended up did I ended up taking a couple of astronomy classes just because that was like a, a fascination of mine from from childhood. And um, so yeah, I went five years. I would say probably the last three years of those I was involved in the Amnesty International group. Um, and ended up taking a leadership position with them and, and actually through that made connections with other groups and other schools and made connections around the country, um, some of whom I still know to this day. So, Wow, that's great. Okay, um, so then with that experience working with, with human rights and, and in uh, philosophy, so then you went to law school right after undergrad? I did. I went straight through. Uh, I ended up going to Columbia Law School in New York City, um, which was a, a fascinating experience. It was a great experience so, I mean, for me because I, I went to undergraduate so close to home. Moving to New York for law school was the experience that a lot of people have when they move away for college. You know, it was like, oh, there's a whole new world out there. Um, and uh, it was a real, really eye-opening and, and uh, opportunity for growth for me. Um, I, I really loved law school, unlike a lot of people who, you know, have less 
happy memories of law school. I, I, I found it fascinating. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, the, the, the subject matter. I enjoyed all the really interesting, smart, passionate people I met in law school. Um, uh, I, I loved being in New York City. Um, I thought it was a great, great experience and great opportunity. And through law school, I continued to study those topics that sparked that interest. So I took a lot of courses in civil rights and immigration and international human rights and you know, as many of those as I could. I ended up being the editor in chief for the Columbia Human Rights Law Review. Um, really was was focused on that, took very few courses around business or corporations, like only the bare minimum I needed to graduate. Um, didn't really see myself moving into the corporate world. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll get to that. What, what, what ended up getting me, it had a lot to do with student loans. Um, and uh, yeah, so I had a really good experience. I thought it was great. And I actually didn't think, you know, coming into law school, I heard a lot of like, oh, it's just, you know, you need to learn to study in new ways and all of that. And, you know, being a history and a philosophy major, doing a lot of writing, um, I didn't feel like the study of law was fundamentally different. Um, uh, you know, parts, the parts of philosophy that I liked, um, like I, I loved my class on, I took two classes, both an elementary and a, an advanced one on, on symbolic logic. Um, and which is like a, a melding of philosophy and mathematics almost. And um, just sort of that logical progression of thinking, um, I thought translated really seamlessly into the law and, um, you know, analyzing text and, you know, legislative intent is a little bit like historical research. And um, so I, I just found that intellectually stimulating. Um, and then, like I said, the substantively, I was focused on, on areas of, of, of civil rights and, and human rights. So on that topic, uh, I see you did a little bit of a, a study abroad in South Africa in 1993. Uh, talk about that. It seems pretty much right after apartheid. So that must have been a fascinating experience. Yeah, it was right in that window between right after Nelson Mandela was released from prison and before he became president um, and right on the tail end of apartheid. And so um, Colombia had a international human rights internship program where they uh, had developed relationships with a number of um, organizations around the world, NGOs. And uh, there were a couple in South Africa. and. Um, you know, I looked at a few of those, that one seemed interesting to me. Um, and I applied for it and I got it. Um, so I spent the summer there, winter in um, Johannesburg, working for uh, an organization that provides direct legal services and advocacy um, on you know, housing and, and um, employment rights and other, other civil rights um, to uh, folks in South Africa. And um, that was an amazing experience as well. Um, you know, just living in a, in a different culture at a really um, fascinating and important and 
sometimes scary inflection point in history. Um, you know, there, it was unknown whether or not the country would descend into civil war at that point. And, um, and it, uh, it, was, it was a great experience. I mean, we really, we, I spent most of the time in Johannesburg, but we traveled around, we spent time in, in townships that um, like when one case had only gotten electricity a few months before we were there. Um, and, uh, you know, just talking to the people, learning about their lives, um, learning about the way that the law can impact those lives um, was a, a really, a really profound and, and uh, rewarding experience. Yeah, you know, something I've realized in uh, this course of my podcasting is that a lot of privacy pros have spent time abroad, either living there or at least doing some kind of experience uh, overseas. You feel like in the in the privacy sense, you know, has that helped you uh, seeing somewhere else other than you know American soil? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, as as a privacy practitioner, almost nothing. Uh, there are a few people who work in industries that are you know purely U.S., but that's rare. I mean, if you're working with tech companies, if you're working with an app developer working out of their garage, um, their ambition is to be global from day one, and oftentimes they are. Um, and so you need to be able to understand different legal regimes, which are influenced by different cultural and historical uh, factors. And for the longest time, I mean, if you were a privacy lawyer anywhere in the world, your work was largely driven by European law. And if you are just reading the GDPR with American eyes based on American legal training, you're gonna get stuff wrong. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there is a way of understanding and reading the law that a European lawyer will take away different things that an American lawyer uh, necess wouldn't necessarily. And I think, even though I, I've never, I mean, I've spent time in Europe on, on, on trips and meetings and all of that, and I've, but I've never lived in Europe. But I think even that experience of, you know, living in a different country and saying, wait, I can't just interpret this experience that I'm having right now through the eyes of my experience growing up in the United States. I need to, I need to understand the context more. The cultural context, the the different legal history, um, uh, all of that, and I think that kind of awareness and openness um, makes you a better lawyer, particularly in this space. Great insight. Okay, wow. So then you moved back home, back to Washington after law school uh, to clerk with the Washington State Supreme Court. So. Talk about uh, that decision there to, to clerk and move back home and and uh, how that year was. Yeah, um, you know, like, like my fifth year of college, uh, a clerkship is a wonderful opportunity to put off adulthood one more year. Um, you know, I I didn't I didn't know exactly where I wanted to be career wise um, as I was approaching the end of my three years of law school. And a fourth year wasn't really an option. Um, so 
doing a clerkship was attractive to me. I also thought it would be really interesting to understand the judicial uh, system firsthand, work directly with a judge, um, you know, hopefully work on some really interesting issues. And so I applied to a number of clerkships, um, got a, a number of interviews, uh, and this one, that I ended up doing was with a judge who had been on the state Supreme Court for a very, very long time. Um, and my background in, in um, I, through undergraduate with the work I did with Amnesty International and the work I continue to do with them through, through law school and the coursework I took actually was, was super relevant because one of the issues I was very interested and passionate about um, at the time and still am is uh, capital punishment. And um, the judge that I was interviewing with was a longtime opponent of capital punishment. He had a, a strong conviction that it, it violated both the state and federal constitutions. Um, and the day of my interview, there was, if I'm recalling this correctly, just a few days before one of the first executions in Washington state in a very long time. And, um, and we talked about that. And we had a really interesting, very uh, you know personal conversation about that, and you know how we felt about that, and how we felt um, that that was a, a failure of uh, the law and um, and the, the societal implications of all of that. And it was just a really, really fascinating conversation, unlike anything I've ever had before or really since in the context of a job interview, um, but it worked. I got the job um, and it was a great experience. It was a great experience uh, personally because uh, this was just a super smart um, uh, justice on the state Supreme Court, uh, a lot of really interesting life experiences that he was very happy to you know, share with his clerks, um, worked very closely, uh, you know, he, critiqued my writing, he critiqued my analysis uh, in a very supportive and um, helpful way. So I felt like I learned a lot. Um, it was a great experience. And then um, he ended up retiring. I was his last clerk um, and he announced his retirement about halfway through our year. And he, he stayed on you know, through the end of my clerkship because there were some cases coming on. Um, but a, a, I had mixed feelings about this, but at the time, and it, it seemed like a, a great benefit because the, the, his caseload diminished dramatically towards the end. And so, boy, by the end, I was, did not have 40 hours of work <laughs> each week. Um, and Olympia is a beautiful place, um, right between two mountain ranges at the bottom of a body of water. And there was just great hiking and biking and stuff. And I had lots of free time towards the end of my clerkship to take advantage of that as we got into the spring and, and the better weather. Um, so that was really nice too. Um, but it was a great experience. And, and but as the end of my clerkship was coming around, um, you know, life was facing me and the deferment on my student loans was coming up and I knew I needed to get a real job. And I certainly applied to a number of opportunities. Some were fellowships, some were, um, you know, full-time positions at different 
organizations, NGOs that I thought would be aligned with, with my values, my interests. And nothing panned out. Uh, there just aren't that many jobs, especially for new graduates in, in those areas. Um, and I, I got engaged to somebody um, who I went to law school with and she had a job at one of the big law firms in DC. And so, you know, I applied to some law firms in DC and ended up getting a job offer from uh, Steptoe and Johnson. And um, I was thankful for it uh, because it would help me meet my financial obligations. Um, but, you know, I, I can't say I was, you know, over the moon excited about going into big law. Um, it wasn't particularly um, my either short-term or long-term ambition, um, but that's, that's where I ended up. Interesting. So when you were there, you already were, were working on uh, some technology questions, encryption already in, in 1995. So talk about that. Was that sort of your first experience into the field of, I guess, tech law generally? Yeah, it was. And this is, um, you know, entirely fortuitous. And, you know, I, I know you've talked with a lot of people who, who have ended up in privacy and particularly back at that time when privacy was just emerging as a distinct area of law that people thought of as a distinct area of law. Nobody, nobody my age planned to go into privacy law. I mean, you know, it all is, you know, just the way life carried you. Um, and in my case, you know, I, I ended up going to a big law firm uh, for the reasons I, I just mentioned. And when I got there, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think they sent out a questionnaire of which, you know, groups you wanted to work with. And one of them was international trade. And I was like, well, I really like, you know, international law. I, I like working with um, the legal systems of other, other countries. Um, you know, I like engaging with people in, in other parts of the world. So, you know, I ticked that box, not even really knowing what international trade law involved with no experience on it. And I got back, um, you know, something before I started saying, We're, you're gonna split your time between litigation and the international trade group. And I got there and I got a bunch of work after all of our orientation stuff, I got a bunch of work from the international trade group, but I never really got anything from litigation. And apparently they didn't get the memo <laughs> that I was supposed to be working with them. So I ended up working almost entirely with the international trade group with a few other uh, assignments from other kind of random groups. Um, and I ended up working with one particular partner who happened to be the former general counsel of the NSA. And he had um, developed this emerging, you know, practice area focus on the regulation of cryptography. And at the time, the uh, Clinton administration treated uh, encryption as a um, export controlled commodity. So we were working with these emerging companies in Silicon Valley that were, you know, building things for uh, the internet uh, as commerce was starting to move online, um, you know, web browsers and online banking uh, systems that relied on encryption. And at the time, if you wanted to sell a product that had encryption in it abroad, you had to either make it with weak encryption that was capable of being broken by uh, US intelligence agencies, primarily the NSA, 
or you had to get an export license from the Department of Commerce. So the work we ended up doing was working with these companies to seek export licenses so that they could sell the strong encryption version, the domestic version of their products to, um, to foreign customers. And um, through that, I learned about cryptography. I learned about um, how the internet worked. I learned about these companies and what they were doing. And I, I developed some, some relationships with them um, and others who were working in these this field of you know e-commerce and and, um, and cryptography and, and and related issues, data security. Um, so that was my introduction to technology, and um, you know, thankfully, um, you know, it, I, I was even though I didn't have a computer science or much of a technology background, at least in terms of formal education, I was able to sort of learn it on the job. Um, through you know working with some very smart people and and you know taking the time to understand how their products um, and, and services worked, and so that's how I got into the technology field. Um, and through and I actually got some some of my other projects outside of sort of that international trade, export control, uh, cryptographic regulation uh, field. I actually got some other projects that had to do with, with privacy. I actually I had a, a, a project where the client was a large utility and they were thinking about the very early iterations of smart metering. And you know what were the privacy implications of a utility getting much more detail about the kinds of appliances that might be connected to um, an electrical utility grid. Um, and, uh, and that was interesting. There wasn't a much statutory law at the time. And so it was focused on like tort law. Um, so I actually did get some, you know, pure privacy issues back then as well, um, very early on. But that it was mostly the, the cryptography, the export control work that I did through my uh, couple of years at, at Steptoe and Johnson. Interesting. So, you know, you talked about learning about cryptography in those years that imagine that you were one of the very first lawyers even to be thinking about that realm of of the law uh you know i guess talk about that is that was that interesting being sort of a, a pioneer so to speak in those areas and you feel like that's helped you or i mean yeah for sure i mean understanding the technology is key to being an effective privacy lawyer you know, I, I, I teach as an adjunct the privacy law course at the University of Washington Law School. Um, and I take two hours at near the beginning of the, the term to focus just on technology. And, you know, I tell the students, you don't have to have a computer science background. You don't have to have an engineering background, but you do need to have a basic understanding of how some of these technologies work to understand the data flows and the privacy implications of them so that you can do your job effectively. And so we go through, you know, asymmetric encryption, we go through uh, how, a, how a website is constructed, we go through, you know, cookies and uh, other types of tracking technologies, we go through, um, you know, facial recognition and biometrics. Like if you don't understand how these technologies work, at least at a basic level, um, and what that means in terms of data processing, um, you know it's going to be hard to 
gauge risk and be effective at advising companies on how these technologies are impacted by the law. So yeah, my, th those early experiences of really having to understand um, how this technology worked um, was, I think, you know, it, it, it left, it gave me a skill of being able to wrap my head around technology or at least being able to ask questions and not be afraid to ask dumb questions when I don't understand it. Um, but it also made me just sort of realize the importance um, of understanding the technology, understanding the business uh, of, of what the client is actually doing before you can you know, sit down and kind of spew out the how that law affects that. Interesting. So then after you spent, you know, a few years there at, at uh, Steptoe Johnson, um, I'd imagine by that point you had some financial flexibility to maybe go back into human rights, but uh, decided to stay in the private sector uh, and go in-house. So talk about that transition moving back to Washington, uh, to Microsoft, and how you ended up there. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, I, I liked working in Washington, D.C. Um, I thought it was a really good experience, but I knew that it just wasn't, it, it didn't feel like home to me. Um, and when I learned that Microsoft was looking to hire somebody as an export control lawyer, which is what I was doing at the time primarily, um, back in the Seattle area, um, I was, I was really interested in that. And, um, so I reached out to the hiring lawyer. I put my name in, got an interview, went out there. It was really interesting. Um, you know, you asked how understanding the technology and cryptography has benefited me during that interview, uh, a, a non-lawyer that was on the interview loop like quizzed me on the technology, like made me draw out a map of how asymmetric cryptography worked on a whiteboard. Um, and thankfully I nailed it um, because I'd spent a lot of time um, getting my head around that technology. Um, so I got the job and I moved out there and, you know, here's where that, um, you know, unplanned uh, happenstance can lead a lot of people into privacy, at least back in those days. Um, I was hired in April of 1998. And I think it was in June of 1998 that the Clinton administration relaxed the export rules on cryptography to the point where it wasn't really a lawyer's job anymore. It was you know, a, a paralegal or, or some other professional who could you know, put together some reporting require, you know, meet the reporting requirements that were still in place around uh, cryptography, but you really didn't need a lawyer, you know, sitting down and negotiating with Commerce Department anymore. Um, so my job kind of went away. And three months into a, being hired. By my, what's that? Uh, do you ever see something like that happening with privacy by design, you know, in, in, in the privacy space? Well, I mean, we, we've certainly over the last 20 years found that there are lots of things that I used to do as a lawyer that non-lawyers are doing now, 
I mean, there, there, is a, there are armies of non-lawyer compliance people um, who work in, in privacy now. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a huge operational component to it. Um, but is, is something like that going to happen where it becomes radically deregulated and there's no need for lawyers anymore in the privacy space? I don't see that happening, not, not in my lifetime. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's a, a different scenario and I feel like I have an awful lot of job security for the, for the foreseeable future. Interesting. Okay, sorry, back to the uh, transition then from, from exports to, to privacy at Microsoft. Yeah, so, you know, the, the export work largely went away. Um, there was still a little bit to be done. And I oversaw a paralegal who, who did a lot of that work for a number of years after that. But, you know, my boss was like, well, you know, cryptography, that's related to data security. That's certainly still very important. That's related to privacy. You know, there's this new European privacy law, this 1995 data protection directive that's now in effect. And people are thinking that maybe it's kind of a real thing that we should pay that folks should pay attention to. And, um, and he's, and, you know, there were people who were working on it, obviously, uh, earlier than that, but there was nobody who was kind of focused on it full time. And he's like, well, why don't you kind of run with that? Why don't you, you know, start, you know, looking at, you know, that set of law, um, and thinking about how that, um, you know, will affect our business. And, you know, these were early days of the internet. Um, you know, the Microsoft's big products, Office and Windows at the time, didn't really even have any internet connect connectivity in it. Um, uh, but it had, you know, there was MSN and there was Internet Explorer and there's certainly a lot of things going online. And this, you could see the trajectory of more and more data collection uh, down the road. And so, you know, getting, getting smart about these privacy laws was, you know, important at the time. Um, and I, I sort of, I was the first guy that was really focused on that exclusively. And over, you know, the subsequent years that grew and grew and grew until there were, you know, dozens of lawyers and hundreds of people at Microsoft focused on privacy. Wow. So, you know, I worked, uh, uh, you worked quite a bit at your time at Microsoft on the public policy side of things, testifying before different uh, congressional committees. So talk about uh, talk about that experience. Yeah, you know, after working in privacy for a few years, and and um, you know, we certainly saw you know the news just this week about um, a federal privacy bill um, being introduced and 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 having a hearing. But that's not new. There, we, we've seen privacy bills introduced for years and years and years now. And so, as we started to see that, and as uh, Microsoft's government affairs team started thinking about, you know, how do we engage on this, they sort of tapped me, and I started spending more and more time in DC. Um, great place to visit. I didn't want to live there. Um, but I like going back and I like working with the folks uh, who work on the Hill. Um, and so, you know, we would meet with with congressional staffers whose um, whose bosses were interested in privacy and were starting to draft 
uh, privacy bills. We would engage with them, try to be helpful, try to, you know, shape them in ways that are, you know, more practically, you know, able to be complied with. You know, Microsoft, I was, you know, fortunate to work for a company that early on both recognized the value of privacy and saw where the winds were blowing. And so Microsoft was one of the first companies to endorse the idea that, yeah, federal privacy legislation actually wouldn't be a bad thing. It's you know, probably a good thing to set a, a baseline set of standards. And so we, we started thinking early on about what that might look like. Um, and uh, you know, working with folks on the Hill to try to uh, shape that in a, in a helpful direction. And so when there were you know, hearings focused on these issues, um, occasionally I would get tapped to come and be the representative of Microsoft, which boy, the first time you do it is one of the scariest experiences. Um, uh, you know, if you're an adrenaline junkie, it's great, um, which I kind of am. So I was, I was terrified and, and thrilled at the same time. Um, but, uh, it, it's a great experience. It's, it's a really interesting experience. And, you know, you realize that it's a mix of, you know, them wanting to hear your substantive expertise, but there's also a lot of theater involved and, and, you know, being able to sort of navigate that and, you know, prep for the, the, the gotcha questions that will get the, the, the soundbite, um, you know, is, is, is an interesting experience. It's, it's, you know, learning a lot. Uh, it's a lot like, you know, talking with the press. If you, you know, if you ever have an opportunity to do like press training and how you engage with, with journalists, you know, when you're representing a company or a client, um, you know, you want to be responsive, you want to be helpful, but you also, you know, have in the back of your mind, like these are the key messages I want to leave. And so you always want to be able to think about pivoting your answer back to those key messages. So, you know, when you're up there and you're, it's the first time you're doing it and you're at the table and there's, you know, people you've, you've seen on TV and uh, right there in front of you in person and there's the C-SPAN camera in your face. And um, it's, it's an intimidating uh, uh, adrenaline producing <laughs> kind of experience, but I loved it. I loved doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really, I, I'm thankful for that opportunity to have been able to do that. So, you know, you're thinking about federal privacy legislation, like you said, since it even was first uh, conceived. So it has, it has the federal privacy discussion changed at all since then uh, for the better or for the worse? Um, you know, better or worse are, are subjective. Um, I think the, the discussion has certainly become more sophisticated um there's been you know a lot of interplay between you know companies and advocacy groups and academia and and policy folks that have you know evolved and expanded what privacy legislation looks like now you know the early versions were very much focused on the so-called FIPS the fair information practice principles notice you know, consent, uh, data subject rights, like the 1995 European Data Protection Directive, the predecessor to the GDPR. 
Um, you know, and now in the in the draft legislation that was introduced this week, you've got additional concepts like, you know, a duty of loyalty, um, you know, things that maybe are a bit more nuanced. Um, you know, you talk to different people about what that means and, you know, you'll get a bunch of different answers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's changed and the way people are thinking about privacy have changed. And certainly the world that people are thinking about regulating has changed. You know, in those early drafts, that was before social media was a thing. That was before, um, you know, facial recognition was a thing. That was, or at least, you know, in it was a concept, but it, it hadn't been deployed in any meaningful way. Um, you know, so the the kinds of problems that are being addressed are are more expansive and better understood now than they than they were back then. I think now you also see a lot of focus on the the interplay between privacy and competition. You know, there's a lot of focus on these large platform players and the amount of power that they, you know, may wield, um, the amount of influence they have in society. And I think a lot of folks that are looking at privacy view that as one way to constrain or regulate that power. You, you, you choke the data uh, flows and you, you cut off some of that influence or ability to... Um, leverage data uh, for ways that that uh, some folks find problematic. So, you know, I think the discussions have evolved in that way. You know, you've got questions around AI and bias now that were not really on people's radar back then. Um, just a lot of, you know, kind of more sophisticated, more um, frankly difficult problems than what early drafts were looking at. And, you know, the, the practice of privacy law reflects that, you know, back in the early days, it was like, oh, we have to write a privacy notice. And, oh, you need to find some way to take in requests to access data and, and show people their data. You know, those were not trivial problems to deal with, especially when you're talking about growing and dispersed databases as data subject rights issues sometimes required retooling uh data systems and, and required a bunch of work and process to be put in place but it's it was a far cry from how do we deal with unintended bias that may be built into data sources that are feeding ai models you know those are just fundamentally different problems and questions and harder questions um, to deal with that privacy regulation is trying to address and get at today Interesting. So while you were still at Microsoft, you started uh, teaching the next generation of uh, privacy pros at University of Washington. So talk about that, why you decided to get into to teaching and uh, how that experience has been. I think you're still teaching today, right? I am. I am. It's just uh, University of Washington on a quarter system. And so I just teach one quarter each year. Uh, it's a privacy, intro, very introductory uh, uh, survey of privacy law. Um, I got into that, um, I don't know, I was always interested in academia. I really liked 
engaging with academics um, for two reasons. One, it's just interesting to hear the perspective of people whose jobs it is to sit back and think about these issues um, and write about these issues. And, you know, in some ways there is a, a benefit of, you know, not being constrained by the day-to-day, -day, you know, practical problems. You can sit back and think big thoughts. Um, and I like getting that perspective. I also really enjoy throwing a, a, a splash of cold water of reality on, on, on some of these papers. And I, I enjoy the back and forth. And I think most academics really appreciate that input saying that is a really interesting and really important problem you're raising. The solution that you put forward may be challenging or frankly, unrealistic for these reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that back and forth. Um, so I, I had the opportunity to engage with a number of academics in my role at Microsoft. Um, and, you know, going back to coming out of high school, going into college where I thought I might want to be a teacher, like the idea of teaching has always been attractive to me. And so when the opportunity arose for this adjunct position at, at the University of Washington, I jumped at it. And I jumped at it for a couple of reasons. One, I think at that point I had already been at Microsoft for at least 15 plus years. And, you know, when you're at any place for that long, you kind of think about what's next. And one of the things that I was thinking about was, do I want to move into teaching? Do I want to go into academia full time? I'd even done some writing uh, to, you know, do some, publish some things in, in law reviews and the like. Um, as I was at Microsoft. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity to, you know, put my toes in the water and, and see how, how it felt. And so I took that position. I, I taught for the first time in 2014 um, and I'm still doing it. And I, you know, I learned that I like it. I get, I get, I get some, I get value out of it. I get fulfillment out of it. I don't have the passion for it that I think you would need to be a really good full-time professor. And that was an interesting learning moment for me. I didn't know if I would. Um, and, and so I decided that I didn't want to pursue that in terms of like, what's next for me. I like doing it. I like, you know, keeping one foot in, in academia. Um, but I didn't think it was for me to do that full-time. So that was, you know, that was, uh, useful and um, a useful insight that I, I gained about myself from that experience. But I do find it valuable and I do really enjoy it. And, and I, I, I like being able to, you know, as you said, train the next generation uh, of, of privacy professionals. And it's been really rewarding for me to see some of those students out um, working in privacy full time now. Um, you know, I've, I've actually hired a couple of former students of mine, a couple of former students or clients of mine, a couple, uh, a number of former students I know are working in this field. Um, and so I, I, I run across them from time to time. And so that's been really rewarding. I also find that teaching keeps me on my toes. Um, you know, there are areas of privacy law that I deal with on a regular basis day to day. There are areas that I only touch occasionally, especially some of the sector specific laws. 
But when you're having to go through and teach them, uh, it forces me at least once a year to um, you know, get sharp on them and be able to answer the tough questions I inevitably get from my students. And one thing I really like is that you know, my students tend to be a nice mix of you know, folks who are coming out of undergraduate, but a number of folks who, um, who uh, have had some you know, real world you know, work experience some of which are in these sectors that um, that uh, I'm now teaching about the privacy laws. So you know, it's not unusual that I will be teaching about HIPAA when I, you know, a student raises their hand and said, "I actually worked in the HIPAA compliance for this large hospital system, and you know, I was wondering about this." And I'm like, "Oh crap! Like this person actually knows what they're talking about. I better, you know." know what I'm talking about in, in response. And so, you know, that, that, that prep of putting together your syllabus and, you know, putting together your, your slides for the course and, you know, reviewing all the stuff that maybe you haven't looked at in a few months. I find that really valuable to at least go through that exercise periodically because it, it keeps things top of mind that wouldn't maybe necessarily remain top of mind. Um, and I also just really enjoy the interaction, the back and forth, the different perspectives that these students bring. Um, got a lot of international students. I've got a lot of students who are, you know, very passionate about some of these issues. Um, so a lot of really interesting perspectives in the discussions in class. Wow, that's interesting. So, um, so then after after Microsoft, you decided to to join your wife uh, Susan at. Hinsu Law. So talk about, uh, you know, that transition there in 2016 and why you decided to make the jump uh, to to sort of a, a smaller to a law firm as opposed to in-house and and uh, how that experience has been so far. Yeah. So so Susan and I met at Microsoft. She's also a privacy lawyer. And um, and we worked together. Um, at Microsoft, and then she left uh, after a couple of years there to co-chair uh, the privacy practice at a at a, a large uh, Seattle-based law firm. And then after a time there, she moved to another Silicon Valley-based law firm and co-chaired the privacy practice there. And she came to me one day in 2014 and said, um, "You know, after we we started dating after she left Microsoft and." Um, and, uh, and then uh, subsequently got married and she came to me one day in 2014 and, um, said, you know, I'm thinking about leaving the firm and going out on my own. And I was like, you're braver than me. <laughs> um, but I've got this gig at Microsoft, good salary, good benefits. We've got, you know, the cushion if you know, it doesn't work out. And she was like, it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm confident that, you know, I, I, I've got connections. I will have a, a set of clients who will, who will come. And I'm, I'm very confident that this is, you know, the right move. And she was absolutely right. Um, she, she went out on her own, was a solo practitioner for a number of months, only a number of months before she said, I think I need to hire an associate. Um, and she did, and then she hired a second associate. And so I was lawyer number four to join this firm. And, and, I, and we talked about it at the beginning. I said, you know, as you know, 
I've been at Microsoft a long time now, 16 years at that point. And I've been thinking about what's next. This actually sounds really interesting. If it's successful, as you are confident it will be, um, uh, I'll probably join you in a couple of years. And that's exactly what happened. Um, after, a, a, after she was in it about, about a year, I actually had a conversation with my manager and said, you know, look, if you are doing long-term planning, you should probably know, I don't think I will be here three years from now. I'm not, I'm not giving notice right now, but um, I think, you know, the, my time at Microsoft is, is, is coming to, to an end uh, sooner rather than later. Um, you know, it's been a great gig. There's nothing I dislike about my job. I've, I, I, really enjoyed and still found the work fulfilling, but I've been doing it for a long time and it was time for something different. Um, and so, you know, I had a really great series of conversations with my then manager and I ended up giving Microsoft like almost a year's notice. We ended up deciding on kind of an end, an end time. And um, that gave me the luxury of wrapping up some long-term projects, transitioning some stuff slowly, training uh, some folks who would be taking over some things. Um, and then I left and, and joined Susan at, at the firm. Um, and it's been, been a great ride since we've continued to grow and it's a, a lot of work in privacy these days. Um, so it's, it's been a really, really great experience and very different um, when you're kind of running the law firm versus when you're a young associate at a law firm, which was the last time I was at a law firm. Um, you know, we, we kind of decided that we're gonna be a little bit different and, and not, not run ourselves like a traditional law firm. And, and we've been sort of making decisions based on that, that, you know, we wanna have the law firm that we wanna have. And it's, it's been great. And, and we've been fortunate to hire some great people and, and have a, a great group of clients and, and it's been a good run. So, you know, you, you work with uh, startups and, and major tech companies. So talk about that, you know, I, I think especially on the startup side, do you feel like startups have enough privacy um, know-how and uh, you know, how, how has that uh, gone? Well, I mean, I can't make generalizations, but for the most part, no, I mean, and you can't expect them to. Right. I mean, a lot of these are started by people who are engineers and not lawyers. Um, and, you know, the, the challenge is, is when you've got a, a company that's, you know, less than 10 people and you don't have a steady source of, you know, revenue or, you know, maybe you've got some VC funding or, or the like, like you can't bring in a full-time lawyer. And the challenge is, is like where on that growth curve, does that make the most sense from a risk perspective and from a business perspective? And, you know, some of these companies are collecting massive amounts of data from day one. Others, you know, depending on the nature of the of the product or the nature of the business, maybe ramp up more, more slowly. And so there's no one size fits all about, you know, when they need to have sophisticated know-how around privacy. And some of this stuff is very, you know, it's gotten increasingly complicated and difficult. And so 
I mean, it's just not realistic to expect every startup to be perfect from day one on these issues. But, you know, we try to get in and we try to look at the business. We try to understand the technology. We try to um, help them think through their compliance obligations and uh, encourage them to allocate their, their resources in a way that makes sense in terms of, you know, what's required, where the risks are, um, you know, where the gray areas are, how you can, you know, what the risks are playing in those gray areas, because there's often a lot of gray areas. Um, and, you know, helping them do a risk-based assessment of, and, and develop a roadmap. Like, you know, you can't be perfect on day one, but we, you know, we can put these things in place. These are the things that you should be building out over the next months or years um, as you grow. Um, and so I really enjoy those conversations because you're kind of starting with a blank slate. Whereas when you come in with a bigger company, you know, a big global privacy or a big global uh, technology company, um, you're not starting with a blank slate. There's a lot of legacy infrastructure. There's a lot of um, ways of doing things that, you know, may or may not have been, you know, optimal. Um, and so you're, you're kind of pushing to bolt on privacy and maybe a less than elegant way on something that already exists. Um, so it's, you know, both are challenging, both are interesting. Um, I, I like both, but they, they can be quite different. Interesting. I want to be uh, respectful of your time. A couple more questions for you. Do you have time to answer them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So, um, you know, I heard a fascinating, uh, I guess, opinion about going into the career of privacy law is that so you're always on the outside looking in, you're always the naysayer, you'll never be in the center of like a, a product development talk. You feel that that's, uh, that's true or, you know, and, and is privacy, I guess, broad enough that you can still like get in, you know, a lot of interesting conversations. I, I have been right in the center of product development talks many, many times. Um, uh, and that's one of the things I like about it. I think, you know, I think you're a better, a better privacy lawyer if you have that skill set to be able to talk directly with engineers, directly with data scientists, uh, directly with, um, with, with programmers, um, and directly with business people, with PMs, with, with marketing people, with HR people, you know, being able to sit down with those people who are, you know, on the ground dealing with these problems and, and work through them, uh, with them. Um, I mean, yeah, as outside counsel, sometimes you are brought in, you have some questions, you don't have all the context, you feel a bit like an outsider, and then you give your advice and then you don't hear from them again. That's less fun. Um, uh, but that's not always the case. I mean, the, the ones where I think you provide the most value is where you are right there in the center of things. They do bring you in and you do have the luxury of learning that context, at least, you know, getting your head around what is their business? What are their objectives? Because, you know, if you are brought in and they say, um, you know, we're, we're going to do this um, and, you know, is that compliant with the law? And you're like, well, you know, seems like it might 
be problematic for these reasons versus if you can really sit down and be part of those conversations in a more meaningful way, you could say, well, what are you trying to accomplish here? What are your business objectives? What kind of product feature are you trying to roll out? Um, you know, what's the user experience that you're trying to optimize for? And let's talk about how you can do that in the most, you know, compliant and, you know, mitigating the risk to the furthest extent possible so that I'm not just saying no, right? I'm not saying, I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying no. I'm saying, let's talk about how you can achieve your objectives um, while taking into account your legal obligations and, and the risks associated with uh, that. That's a, you know, I, I think I'm adding a lot more value when I can be part of that. And I think, you know, it's also funner and it's more fun and, 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 and more fulfilling to be able to be part of those conversations. So, um, you know, I don't like being asked to write the legal memo. I like being able to like roll up my sleeves and, and talk with the, the, the business and, and really help them solve some gnarly problems. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in the last few years, you've uh, been a senior fellow at the uh, future of privacy forum. Let's talk about, uh, I guess, how you started there and, and what you've done with them. Yeah, I've known um, the, the head of FPF for, for many, many years, um, probably going on two decades now, um, Jules Polonetsky. And a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, Jules reached out to me and said, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing this project on... Um, you know, data sharing, private sector companies sharing data with researchers, scientific researchers, academic researchers. Um, and that's something that I had worked on some in the past. Um, and he asked if I would be interested in, in helping to lead that work. And so they brought me in as a senior fellow. Um, I led a project that lasted uh, 18, 20 months, something like that. And we brought together a group of stakeholders, um, uh, mostly company representatives uh, from companies in, in technology, social media, uh, ed tech, uh, advertising, um, health and pharma, and um, companies that have some, um, that companies that hear from researchers that say, hey, the data that you have would be really interesting and valuable for us to be able to have access to for carrying out um, studies. Um, and so we convened this group of stakeholders. We talked about what are some of the barriers or challenges for that kind of data sharing, um, reputational, legal, et cetera, um, and talked about ways of developing sort of best practices that can help address some of those problems. You know, what should, what should the contract contractual provisions look like in a data sharing agreement in these contexts? What are some, you know, kind of best practices for vetting the kinds of research or the, the researchers that would um, have access to the data? What kind of protections can be put in place, whether it's, you know, de-identification methodologies or um, other types of protections that can be um, implemented to, again, achieve that objective while minimizing risk. Um, 
So that was a really interesting project. We came up with a couple of um, products from that, a set of best practices, a set of contracting guidelines. I wrote uh, a paper that analyzed how some of the laws treat um, data sharing for scientific research purposes, how there's exceptions built into some laws, how there's uh, sometimes sort of softer uh, provisions that seem to give more leeway for scientific research um, or how other uh, elements of certain laws can enable that kind of data sharing and you know what kind of compliance measures would need to be in place. So um, that was a great project. I, I, I love that because um, one of the things I find really interesting about privacy is, you know, we're talking about data and we're talking about data that can be used for really valuable purposes. There's a lot of value in data. Um, and how can we enable the extraction of that value while protecting privacy? How can we enable the extraction of that value while protecting the company from legal liability? You know, and, and, and trying to think about how to strike that balance. Um, and there's no, you know, in, in the privacy space, there's no, there's no perfect answers often. You are, you're balancing a bunch of different interests and a bunch of different values and trying to come up with the optimal solution. Um, and in this case where, you know, you see that the value at the end of the day is medical research that could actually save lives or you know, research in social media that's looking at issues around you know, election integrity to take a, an issue that's top of mind um, these days, or um, you know, other social impacts of these technologies where if there's a lot of value of having somebody outside the company being able to analyze that data and come to conclusions and, and put forth recommendations. And if companies are so reticent to share that data because of fear of liability or reputational damage, um, fear that something could go wrong with that data and it could be misused in some way. Um, then we lose all that value that can come out of that data. And so coming up with ways to enable that kind of data sharing um, while protecting privacy, while um, getting the companies comfortable that they can do that without you know, putting a lot of uh, risk of liability um, out there. Um, I found that really, really valuable um, and really, really fulfilling. Yeah, it sounds like a great project. Um, so looking forward to the future, you know, where do you see the privacy field going with the, with the uh, federal legislation maybe? And um, just in general, where do you see the, the privacy field going? And then I guess the second part of that question is, where do you see uh, Mike Hinsey in that in that field uh, in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's going to be a wild ride for the next couple of years. Um, you know, we've got what five new state laws coming into effect in 2023. Um, it would not surprise me that when um, the majority of the state legislative sessions open up again in the fall, we see another wave of of privacy law being passed. And, you know, while there's a lot of commonalities between um, some of the state laws that have passed so far, and while there are very different point of views on, you know, whether or not they are, you know, valuable or, you know, positive, 
the reality is, is that companies have to comply with them. And every time there's a, a, a slight difference in wording that raises questions like how do we put in something in place that deals that can that you know would comply with both of these things um, and every state legislature likes to put their own little unique stamp uh, on them by by changing a few things or adding another provision or or the like and so you know i think companies are continually going to be struggling with these will a federal law be passed that will preempt all of those differences i'm not holding my breath um hmm. you know there's there's certainly more momentum for that than we've seen in the past in no small part because of these state laws where people are like oh you know freaking out about how are we going to reconcile all these different things and the problem will only get worse so please congress do something but there's a lot of pressure to, you know, either soften or remove the preemption. Um, there is a lot of debate around, you know, what a, whether or not, or what it would look like if there's a private right of action. Um, you know, there's a lot of contentious issues. And I think a lot of people underestimate how truly difficult it is to get something through Congress, especially a comprehensive privacy bill. You know, we're talking about the, the Commerce Committees of the House and Senate. And the reason that we're talking about the Commerce Committees is because these privacy bills carve out um, certain industry sectors like financial services. Because if financial services was included, it would get referred to the banking committees as well, right? Um, and if you start getting a lot of different committee referrals, the reconciliation process between committees is very, very difficult and it kills a lot of bills. So that's a good way to kill a bill is to get different committee referrals going. Um, and so that's challenging. But if you are carving out things to try to keep that process more streamlined, we're going to end up with a federal privacy bill that carves out financial services. And what that means is that the mom and pop bookstore on the corner is going to be held to a much higher standard on privacy than Citigroup is, uh. which is kind of insane if you think about it, right? Because the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that, that applies to financial services today is a pretty weak bill. It is a notice bill and a limited opt-out bill for sharing with unaffiliated third parties, and there's some data security requirements in there. Beyond that, there's nothing. Um, and the bills that were being talked about now in Congress are much more robust than that. Lots of data subject rights, uh, lots of other obligations, data minimization requirements and the like. And again, every company, the most benign retailer that collects a relatively small amount of information, again, is going to be held to a much higher privacy standard than the financial services industry in the United States. And is that politically sustainable? Probably not. So even though the financial services are carved out, you're likely going to see some back behind the scenes opposition from those very companies that are being carved out because they probably realize what that looks like. Um, so there's a lot of barriers to getting something done at the federal level um, at the moment. Right. 
and I think it's, it's, it's not impossible. It could happen. And I think the more we see chaos happening at the state level, the more motivation there will be for something to happen at the federal level. But it is really challenging, and I don't think it's going to happen in the next year. Wow, fascinating analysis there. So my last question for you is, um, you know, what are some of the people listening to this thinking about how they can maybe become the next uh, Mike Hinsey? What, what are some of the steps, you know, that you feel that you've taken um, along your career that have really gotten you to, to where you are today? Well, I mean, as we talked about, a lot of it was just sort of happenstance and accident, um, right place at right time. Um, so I've been, I've been fortunate by, by just the timing, my, my career evolved as this area of the law was evolving. Um, you know, I would say there are jobs in privacy. And so, um, you know, if you want to work in privacy, chances are you'll be able to work in privacy. Will you get your ideal dream job your first year out of law school? Maybe not. Um, and I would say, you know, like I did, um, other experiences will build your skill set, build your knowledge, build your perspective in ways that will benefit you as a privacy lawyer. And so, you know, even if you don't get your dream job, as your first job as a lawyer, you know, maybe you're doing litigation, maybe you're doing some other regulatory area. Um, it's all valuable experience. And, you know, if, if this is where you want to end up, you know, keep your eye on that North star, look for opportunities. Um, but don't, you know, despair if you feel like your career takes a slightly different uh, tangent because all of those experiences are worthwhile. And you can build on all of those. Um, and you know, I I like when I'm hiring people for our firm to find people with different backgrounds. You know, somebody that is you know came through law school said I want to do privacy. I want to do privacy, and all they've done is privacy. Well, that's great. You know, they're going to know privacy law really well. But privacy law touches on so many other areas. Um, you know, it, a lot of stuff I do involves you know, reviewing contract terms. A lot of stuff I do involves, you know, dealing with in regulatory investigations. You know, we're, we're small, so we don't do like full-blown courtroom litigation, but we do, we, we help companies um, avoid litigation. We help companies, sometimes we'll partner with bigger firms um, on litigation. So all of those experiences, um, other adjacent areas of the law can be really valuable and can inform your work in this space. So I, you know, I encourage people just to, um, you know, take life and take your career as it as it happens. And if you have a five year plan, and it doesn't go exactly according to plan, that's okay. And maybe it's really good um, because some of those unexpected uh, tangents that your career might take can come back to to benefit you in ways that you might not expect. Okay. One last uh, very closely related question. You talked a lot about sort of the technical know-how that you've had in the encryption space and then in the privacy space for data privacy, you know, and pros, how do they build out some of that uh, technical know-how? Curiosity. Um, ask questions, you know, take the time to like dig into the stuff 
And sometimes it takes a while to wrap your head around it. And, you know, sometimes you need to do a little bit of extra reading. And sometimes you need to ask some questions that, um, you know, maybe you feel a little dumb asking. And sometimes you have to ask them again. Um, but if, if you're curious about the stuff and you understand that the, the, the process of wrapping your head around the technology will help you give better privacy advice. Um, you know, that's all it takes. I had no formal training in technology. As I, as I said, I was a history and a philosophy major and I'm talking to people who have PhDs in data science. Will I ever understand everything they understand? Of course not. Um, but can I, you know, ask questions, spend time to um, really get an understanding of what I need to understand to evaluate the legal risk, understand where the data is flowing, how it's protected, um, you know, how it may be utilized. Um, you know, you can get there if you're, if you're curious enough and you're inquisitive enough about it. Okay, yeah, excellent advice. Uh, and with that, I really appreciate it. Mike, thank you uh, so much for, for joining the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. It was, it was good talking with you. Okay, excellent.